Thank you so much, Elder Allen, for leading us through a very difficult passage of Scripture, and that's not easy. Welcome, everybody, to the gathering here of God's people. We call it services. If you're new to the Christian faith, the first time we are here or still unfamiliar, we call this a service, and we gather to do a few things, very important things, to pray to God, to listen to His Word, but more than listen to His Word, to live a life that is lived in obedience to Him. Before we begin, i just like to check there are their doctors here. For those who are new, last week, under God's sovereignty, we had one of our members here pass out, but thankfully God preserved his life, and so we do say that uh, we thank God for his blessing and, and preserving of Roland's life. He's well, he's healthy, we'll say more about that later in the message, and thank God for all the doctors in our midst. So here we are in another difficult passage of Scripture that may be very unfamiliar to us, just the names itself. I do not know how long Ellen practiced the reading of those names. And so today's message is wondering about the God of land. The main theme in the book of Deuteronomy, as compared to Genesis, Exodus, the focus there was actually on the people, the descendants, and more about that later. The focus from this point onwards, Deuteronomy, is on the land. And so what do you call a land without people? So did you read the article in the Straits Times about Japan? And so stories told of this Australian couple, uh, Jaya Tursen, and they bought an abandoned house. An abandoned house in Japan is called Akia, right? They bought that abandoned house of 230 square meters of land for $33,000. Hey, $33,000, no? It's not even your deposit for your HDB flat. There are 8.7 million abandoned houses in Japan as at the moment, right? Akia. Due to the falling birth rate and the aging population, perhaps the fastest aging in the world, by 2033, they estimate that one-third uh, or 20% of the houses in Japan will be abandoned. That means you have to beg people to take over that house or the old folks just abandoned that house in the rural areas and the villages, the small towns. Go watch documentaries on it. There are quite a lot. ABC, NBC. So what do you call a, a land without people? Deserted. What do you call a people without land? Let's see when I can get this. Looks like... Okay. A people without land is deserted. A land without people is deserted. A people without land is displaced. And so up to this day, the Palestinians are still fighting for that land. Right? The Rohingyas have no land in Myanmar. And so lots of people around the world still don't have a place in which they can call their country. By God's grace, we're doing a ministry with refugees and they're in Malaysia. And they are for many of the displaced lands. And whenever we can, we just go and share in some small way, just teaching and blessing them in some way. What do you call a people and a land without God? We call it Canaan. We call it the world. We call it idolatry. For when God made us in His image, He made us rulers of the world, which tells you that land without God becomes valueless. Land without God becomes meaningless. Land without God becomes idolatrous. 
So when God promises His people a piece of land, it is to rid the land of all idolatry. As a small picture that one day He will return and rid the whole world of the false worship of man-made gods and install in the new heavens and the new earth the right worship of God. A people in a land without God is Canaan. A people in a land without God is the world in rebellion against God. A people in a land without God is idolatry. That is the message of the Bible as you pick it up from here. And it's vitally important for us to realize. Next one. I think you have to help me with the slides. Oh, sorry, I'm using the wrong clicker, Frank. I'm very bad at technology. It is this one that can reach even uh, Sembawang. <laughs> my goodness, so sorry. <laughs> my fault, my bad. So, this portion is all about wandering. They wander through Edom, and then they wander through Moab, and that's from verse 9 to 18. And then they wander through Ammon. And I do not know, in the Bible reading that we read just then, did you get lost? Yes, for many of us, it's just too much geographic details. It's just too many details and too many names. It's so unfamiliar. And so the simple message was God wanted to send the right message to the next generation of Israelites about a right vision, a right view of land. And that goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 12. And I said to you, there are few Bible passages of the Bible that you need to know for your good, for now and for all eternity. Never forget Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. Can we read this together? Together. Now the Lord said to Abraham, And so what does God promise Abraham? And why is that so important? Because from Gen he started with Genesis 1 and 2, and God's simple purpose was to bless. Bless mankind made in His image. Go forth, multiply, and fill the earth, and rule the world on God's behalf. And that brings glory to God, the ruling of the earth on God's behalf. But we rebel against God. And from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, it's filled with curses. It's filled with curses. So the next time you hear of God's continued plan to bless humanity is to the person, the aged person of Abraham and his aged wife with a barren womb. He promises this couple that has no chance of having children, children, a great nation. He promises them land and all who bless them will be blessed. All families of the earth will be blessed. This is the anchor passage in which God will regain land, regain a people, and God is determined to be worshipped. And Israel in Canaan, the promised land, will be a small picture of one nation worshipping Him, anticipating all nations streaming in to worship Him. So why does God remember in chapter 1? See, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land from that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So what God promises, He never, never turns around. 
He will fulfill it at the greatest cost. So remembering and forgetting in the Bible, when God remembers, He remembers to fulfill His promise to save us, and He saves us because He loves us, and He loves us and wants to bless us. Is that too difficult, that God saves us because He loves us, and He has only one purpose, to bless us, as He is our God and we become His people. Israel becomes a picture of we. We forget God when we try to save ourselves in a fallen world and try to make a paradisical world all by our own human wits and wisdom, only to discover that is brokenness and lostness in this world. And so the whole lesson about remembering and forgetting. When Israel's forget, and what happens when Israel forget? You would not go up, but rebel against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us in the hands of the Amorites. And so the God who brought them out is out to destroy them. And so what's the lesson? We need to understand chapters 1 and 2 in context. God's promises are real. His command to go is real. The enemies in the land are real. The good land is real. And so is Israel's rebellion. Everything is real. Nothing can be taken from that gospel formula. So you need to ask, which stands out as the number one reality? It would seem that our human rebellion has the last word. Yet, you rebel against the Lord and you refuse to go up. So, have you ever given instructions to your children? And whenever you give instructions to your children, how many children say yes immediately? Give me more instructions. That is not our fallen nature. That's not our sinful nature. Whenever we hear instructions from the first human mode of instruction under God, parents, we rebel. And that's us. Our rebellion seems to have the last word. It seems to be the most real thing in our hearts, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, rebellion. And so, we showed you this last week, and we need to walk you through for you to understand. I know it's a little bit far, but you just have to follow the pointer. Can you see a pointer? We begin again in Egypt. They were in slavery here for hundreds of centuries, and God heard their cries as they live under the oppression of a human king. All human kings, though they promise paradise, in the end oppress. And so God sets them free. They cross the Red Sea here. Right? Miraculously, He drowns the fastest and fleetest army with the waters of the Red Sea. They cross over this, and immediately Mara, they grumble against God. They come down, the next big point is Mount Sinai, where God not just rescues them, but gives them the law so that they'll be able to live. And so, important thing in Israel's history, they are not saved by keeping the law. They are saved to keep the law. You never put the law before salvation. You're saved to keep the law. And then God told them to march. They march, and Kadesh Barnea is where they fell. They send the spies in, the land is real, the enemies is real, God's promises are real, but their rebellion is real. And so here they are. 
Today, after 38, 40 years, they march now and you see Edom here, you see Moab here, you see Ammon here. This is the red that was just red. And so all the action geographically is taking place as they now enter. Next week, we're going to see Hashbon, Adre, and Bashan. Can you get that? Right? We told you to sit closer. Lah. Hello. Yeah. So always remember, remember what? 1140, there's in Christian circles the 1040 window. That means a huge proportion of Christians haven't. But 1140, what was supposed to take 11 days took 40 years. You either choose the straight line of faith and obedience to God, or you can go round and round in circles due to your rebellion expressed in your sin against God. That principle still stands in life. And so, how does it work in life? We say to people in our preaching and our teaching and our counselling one-to-one, this marriage is on the rocks. You may have a lot of grumbles against each other and against God for bringing you together. It's so strange, right? When you're dating, God brought you together. When your things are not well, God is telling you to leave each other. So we don't say in our vows, right, I do. We don't ask. The solemnizers, at least I don't. Do you, right, Christian, not myself. Do you, JC? Do you, Tony, take this woman to be a... We ask, will you take? We don't do weddings. We don't do marriages. We will. It's a commitment. A commitment means your whole heart and your whole lot. You jump in with your whole being, trusting for God, in God, to keep you there. And so, we say to people of tensions and friction and fracture, it's either a straight line of obedience, or if you do not want to learn the lesson, you'll go round and round in circles. It's as simple as that in terms of God's principles for us. To really understand this portion, you need to understand the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And here we are. Look for Abraham on the left-hand side, and from Abraham finally came the promise of Isaac. And from Isaac comes Esau and Jacob, right? And from Esau will come the Edomites, spoken about in Genesis 38. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. You know that story. And from Lot will come Moab and Ben-Ami. From Moab will come the Moabites. From Ben-Ami will come the Ammonites. Are you now clearer? It's not as difficult. And so, unless you have this backdrop, the rest of chapter 2 and beyond will actually be beyond our understanding. And so, then we turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me, so what did God tell them to do? Turn away from the promised land. You didn't want to go to, into the promised land, so you turn away. You turn away from the promised land, you're not going to enter that land. right? And so for as many days as we travel around Mount Seir, then the Lord said to me, it's always hearing the voice of God. You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. Notice they turn upward. You saw the map. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, and they'll be afraid of you. So be very careful. God's instructions to them, for the Edomites, do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as the, for the sole of your foot. You won't take so much as an inch of the land of the Edomites. Why? 
because I gave the land to them, says God. You shall instead of fighting them and taking their land, you shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, that you might buy water from them with money that you might drink. And basically, you might skirt the land, not fight them. And so lessons, they are pretty much the same. Notice here, do not contend with them. Why? Because it is me, as you look back at the family tree, it is I, God, who have given them that land. So don't fight them. Don't take their God-given land. Do buy food and then bypass that land. He says the same things when they go through Moab. Do not harass them and do not provoke them to war. I've given R to Lot's descendants, to Lot's descendants, so no as that. Like the Anakites, and who are the Anakites? They are the, the big people of the land, the giants of the land, the NBA basketball players of the land. Have you ever stood beside a basketball, NBA basketball player? Uh, hello. You should try. You should try. You look like a midget. That's how you feel. You feel so small. And try playing a game of basketball with them. You won't shoot any baskets. Zero will be the word. And so the land is filled with these giants. So don't take their God-given land and do learn from the giants of the land. And what's the lesson? Wandering to Ammon. So we can only but summarize. Do not harass them. Do not provoke, provoke them to war. I've given them the land as to Lord's descendants. And then comes the confusion of all the ites. The Rephites is the big title. And the Ammonites call them Zemzumites. I'm going to try pronouncing that. Zemzumites, right? So don't fight the people. Don't take their God-given land. And do learn whether this is a confidence smasher or confidence booster. When you meet these giants of the land, you have to dispossess the land of these giants. And so what does that mean? Firstly, God gives them a vision of the enemies. The people are greater and taller. The spies come back with the report. The cities are great and fortified. So the message is, do you believe that the God of tiny, puny Israel, right, without a land, on the march, is also God of the giants of the land? He's God of the Anakites, God over the Rephites, God over the Emetites, God over the Zemzumites. So I do not know what illustration to give you. Right? There's the same, possibly the same group of people called different names by the Moabites and the Ammonites. So if you go to the UK, right, when they refer to Asians, who do you think they are mainly referring to? If you go to UK and study there, if they refer to Asians, they refer mainly to the Indians and the Pakistanis who have settled there in huge numbers. When you go to Australia, right, and they refer to the Asians, they refer mainly to us, the Chinese who have settled there. Same group of Asians. Asians includes Chinese and Indians who make up half the population of the world. But we call them by, we call them by different names. We, same name, but different meanings of who they refer to. This one, different names, but the same group of people. Right? So the land lessons, what is it that God wanted them to see spiritually? That Israel's God is not a local deity. He is a global God. He is Lord of the nations. For Israelites to think that He's only our God, and there are many gods out there, 
would be a mistaken view. Their God is the only God, and the technical word is monotheism. Unless it becomes part of their DNA, there is only one God, and His name is Yahweh. He's the true, He's the living and the loving God. There is no God but Yahweh. Israel will always get this wrong. So when you fight battles, when you play a game, when RI plays ACS, when ACS plays RI, sorry, wrong illustration. You just have to remember there's only one God. I don't know what the result will be. You just have to remember one God. Paul in Athens begins this way when he preaches this to the most philosophical nation of that time. The God who made the world, he has determined the times and places where each should live with a purpose that every nation would somehow seek him and find him. And Paul would say, in the last days, God has appointed one to be judged over all the nations. So he moves very quickly from God, the creator of all, the ruler and determinant of all. So Singapore is not your second choice home, if you believe this. Wherever you are, is God's first choice home for you. Do you believe that? If you believe that this is God's first choice home, whether it's here or Malaysia or Indonesia or Myanmar, anywhere in the world, then you would live as a child of God, believing not in Him as your local deity, but the God of the entire world. And believing in His sovereignty, whatever you do not know, God is working all circumstances to save every tribe, every people, every language, as is the picture in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Do you believe that? That the God that you believe in, that the God that we preach and proclaim every week here is the God of the entire world. That must be your confidence. That is a confidence smasher or confidence booster. When you see the giants of the land, you might think that's not possible. Her vision of God, faith and spiritual warfare is not the science of the enemies that matter or the might of their fortresses. It's not our great faith in God that matters, but our faith in a great God that will matter to Israel more and more and more. So last week I said to you, for Israel, it's not that she will have less fears. The enemies are just as real but she will learn to fear less and less. And you know why? Because God says to Moses, tell the people, they will now fear you. They will now fear you because they would have heard the oral report, right, to the Google of that time, to the CNN of that time, to the BBC of that time, that Israel defeated Pharaoh. That Israel defeated nation upon nation that Israel, a nation that doesn't know warfare, defeats the nations who knows warfare because God is their warrior. And so what's your vision of God? And what's your vision of faith and spiritual warfare? So learn lessons. Is it a confidence smasher or booster? The specific lesson for them, as we learn from Deuteronomy 2, is this. 
if God could give to Edom, Moab and Ammon, He will surely give to Israel, whom He alone calls His son. God doesn't call Edom, Moab and Ammon His sons. So we can trust Him for descendants. You can trust Him to bring many descendants from an old man and a barren womb that has now become a great nation. You can surely trust Him for land that is possessed by giants and secured by human armies and fortresses. But don't make it look simple. You stare an army in the face, I can say to you, I will turn inwards and become a coward. Without the grace of God and the word of God and the empowerment of God. So which is our blind spot? When we live in a fallen world and deal with our sinful nature and Satan works in this world, to tell you that the kings and rulers of this world are really the kings and rulers of this world and God is not king. What is your blind spot? Don't forget God's heart during the wanderings. And God's heart during the wanderings, He tells you this, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands, for He knows you're going through the great wilderness. For 40 years, the Lord your God has abandoned you. Sorry? Are you still with me? I bold the words for you. For 40 years, you mustn't think God abandoned them. He has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went our way, went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Eleph to Ezion Geber. When Israel forgets God, it forgets what God said to Moses to tell Pharaoh. Let my son go, that he might worship me. But if he refused to let him go, I, the sovereign king of the world, even the sovereign king of Egypt, which you do not recognize, I will kill your firstborn. God is not a local deity that you find in our construction sites. God is not a local deity that you find in our hawker centers. God is the God of of the universe, the God of the nations, the God of Israel. You and me are challenged by God to have that vision. And so enduring lessons about God as we read this portion. For Israel, He is their deliverer from Pharaoh who oppressed them and treated them with sinfulness, not equal human beings, just as slaves to them. He is the provider of all their needs. He is the warrior against their enemies. He is the judge when they rebel against Him and fail Him. He is their loving Father. He is eternally faithful to His covenant of love. And so as Israel journeyed out, she had to learn many sides of that one true living holy God. One God, but very deep, Many layers to this God. The first thing he told Moses was, take off your sandals. I am a holy God. And that's the first thing she has to learn, Israel. What does it mean for a people of sin to live with a holy God? So which side of God we cannot or will not trust? We know this comes to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, our brother Roland 
cast out. And there was necessarily a pause here, a commotion here, as our brothers who had knowledge of, of medical knowledge attended to him. And so Deacon Susan tried to bring composure. I got up here and tried to bring you to prayer. And what is it I prayed? Can you remember? That we're just fresh from learning John's Gospel. And John's Gospel has seven I am sayings. That you, O oh God, Lord Jesus, you are, you are the bread of life. You are the light of this world. You are the door through which we enter. You are the good shepherd who laid down your life and take up your life. You are the way, the truth and the life. You are the life and the resurrection. You are the vine. We claim all the seven I am's for the sustenance of Roland. It's not much use learning theology, theoretically. When it comes to crisis and none of the I am sayings of Jesus comes to your heart and mind, you do not trust him as the bread of life that fully satisfies you. You do not trust him as the light of this world that shines in the darkness of your life. You do not trust him as the door through which you enter, the only door. You do not trust him as the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. How can you and me say, Jesus is my Saviour and my Lord? There are many, one Lord, one Jesus. There are many sides to this Lord. Which side do you find difficult to believe in? I hope we learn lessons. So I didn't script that prayer, you know. So I, Roland, can you please pass out? Then give us a chance to test this out. Right? And then he came back. He revived. Right? He, as he left, he could give us a thumbs up. His wife, Catherine, came. They are a lovely couple. They like to joke with each other. And she said, you are very drama. Right? You want some attention, is it? <laughs> Only spouses can say that to each other in a life-threatening moment. When you come to your life-threatening moments, when you come to your temptation moments, is there anything of God? Which one of this will you plead? Which one of it you cannot believe or you will not believe? Cannot believe means, huh? okay, I'm, I'm physically handicapped. I had an accident example. I'm in a wheelchair. I cannot run. I cannot walk. Mona tells me, hey, can we go for, oh, she forgot I had a fall. I cannot because I'm physically handicapped. Will not is... Do you want to go for a walk? No lah, I just want to game some more. That's willfulness. That's not cannot. You're not disabled by anyone or anything. You're disabled yourself. So which one is it that you find hard to believe? That God is the deliverer from Satan and sin. That God is the provider of all your needs. That God is the warrior against the enemies. That God is judged for your failure that God is loving Father, that God made the covenant He will never renege on this. So lessons about God and lessons about faith. You must not take their land. I will not give you an inch, a centimetre of that land, not enough to put your foot, your soul on. 38 years precisely, He numbers those years, an entire generation passes away. God has blessed, in verse 7, by verse 15, God is come against you. All the fighting men who did not go up after the spies' report, they will not enter that land. And God says to them, as you enter from the Edomites to the Moabites to the Ammonites, leave them, leave them. 
When you come to Hezbon and Bashan, fight them, fight them. Which tells you faith and obedience to God is exacting, is precise. It's never God confronting you of a generic sin. God, do I have generic sin? Or you got anger sins there, I can see it there. Can you see? This side has, I can see lust here. I can see unforgiveness here. I can see entitlement there. I can see. It's not I can see, God can see. God is very exacting about our sins. He's very exacting in wanting you to confess where you have hidden idols and idolatries in your life. God doesn't confront you generically with sin because you and me walk around with this idea in this world, we are all nice people. God says to us in His Word, we are all sinners, nasty people without God. And so it's important for us to realise this. The enduring lessons of our rebellion as sin is Israel. You murmured in your tents, be very careful that you think that He's God of the universe, but He's not God of what you do with your phone, what you do in your car, the privacy of your bedroom, what you say against God and what you say against God's people in your rooms is hurt by God. What we murmur in our hearts, in our tents, there is a listener. He doesn't need any listening devices like flying balloons into each other's country space then you have to shoot it down with a missile that costs $5 million. God listens to your heart. He listens to your conversation. And if you murmur against the God who loves you and say He hates us, He's out to bless you, and He says you brought him, He brought us out to destroy us, God makes us remember. Remember the episode you didn't trust Him? You can find all your sins back to the moment of not trusting God. Because you didn't trust God, you took things into your own hands. You thought about thoughts that didn't come from God. You spoke words against God and spoke words against God's leaders and spoke words against God's people that didn't come from God. You said to God, God is out to destroy us. It's always about someone else's bad. It's never about our bad. But the audit trail of rebellion goes back to distrust. So lessons about rebellious hearts from chapter 1 and 2, and that is why they are on the march, the second generation on the march. You turn God's goodwill into hate. The seriousness of turning benevolence, which is goodwill, into malevolence. Forgetfulness leads to unfaithfulness in life. Is that you? Is that me? And I say this again and again. When God, when we are dating and courting, God has blessed us. When things are rough, God wants us to split up. Where did you reach the conclusion so quickly that God's name and God's will can be so fickle? The very definition His covenant God means in Singlish, uh, He's steady. Uh. He never changes His mind. He never changes his love. That's very important for us to realize. We are the fickle ones. And so Israel's blind side to her own rebellion is that she rejected God's love. She rebelled against God's authority through Moses 
and the leaders. Notice the nation was broken down into thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, for them to be judges. And if any case was too difficult of their strife, they bring it right up to Moses there. They ignored God's commands. They broke God's covenant. And so I ask on God's behalf of myself and of you, which one of this are you possibly repeating in your life? The rejecting of God's love, the rebelling against God's authority, the ignoring of God's commands, the breaking of God's covenant. Remember John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18? Hey, we just did John. Didn't even do 21 chapters. We are very kind now because we know you won't remember 21 chapters. We only did 11. And then we had Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Remember John chapter 1? He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who receive him, Jews and Gentiles, he gave them the right, the right to become children of God. You and me are very hardcore, very hardened, very addicted in our rebellion against God. So I ask again, which one are you, read, are you embarking on? The rejection of His love, the rebellion against His authority, the ignoring of His commands, the breaking of His covenant. Our blind side to our rebellion, God's endless love for Israel's history meets our endless grumbling our endless fears, our endless rationalizing of sin. Our <clears throat> if the spies didn't bring us this report, that the people there were taller than us and the cities were fortified, we would have gone in. They forgot the other part is a good land flowing with milk and honey. The blaming of others, we would have gone in, Lord, but we thought of our children. And if we go in and we are routed by the giants, our children will be taken will be taken. Guess what? The first generation said this, they didn't enter, their children entered. You think God cannot protect the next generation? That you should use them as an excuse for your distrust of Him? Do not use our children for why we must stay away from God. So make a side point, right? Having young children is very tough. I've got two grandkids and to see my son and my daughter-in-law struggle with them, They've gone through a bout of sickness and both kids were down, most likely with COVID. The whole family was down. It's just tiring. But that's just a period. And I still have to encourage them as father and grandfather, get back on track, get back on track. Quiet times, read the Word of God, abide deeply in Jesus, abide deeply in His Word, put on the full armour of God. It's all a spiritual battle. Amen? Don't take a holiday from God. God did not give you children so as to stop you from services and Bible study groups. You may have to make adjustments, but please do not use children as an excuse for your lack of commitment to God. He didn't give children to drive a wedge in your faith with God. God gave you children so that you will grow in your faith and obedience. You ask me where have I learned and matured the most? I've learned and matured in the school of marriage, in the school of life, in the school of marriage, in the school of parenting, right? And everywhere we went, Mona is sitting here, my wife today, we were students in Mall College when Hanshin, our son, came. We brought him everywhere. 
So much so, Philip Jensen highlighted this. He was the pastor at that time, says, there's an example of a couple who brings, the, where their life revolves around God, not around their child. And that's not a boast. We're just taught by him to do that. And children learn to configure their life around your life around God. I see that a lot. So when I see you bringing your children here, I tell the leaders, I tell the preachers, please welcome them. When I see the young come with their children, you know how much effort has gone to that. We have prayed about it last night. Shall we go? Shall we not go? Shall we not go? Shall we not go? Then we prepare. Every outing is, how many bags? Huh? How many nappies? Huh? Do you bring the bottles or not? Do you bring the sanitizer or not? Do you bring? It's not an outing, you know? It's a military position. It, the commitment that you have brings courage to my heart. And we say to every preacher and pastor, please recognize how hard. And please don't give them a half-baked message. Please don't superficially welcome people. When you stand there and welcome people, welcome. It's not just us welcoming you. You can welcome each other. Amen? Now turn and give each other a hearty welcome because I've rebuked you already. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. I love you. Never mind. It's okay. Practice that later. Okay. So where do we go from here? Addiction to self-rescue. You keep wanting to blame God. You keep wanting to blame others. You turn God and His servants' goodwill into bad will. You grumble in your tents. You fear your circumstances. You rationalize your distrust. How are you wriggling yourself out of obedience? There will always be something to grumble about. Is that true? Give you half a chance, right? If you have nothing to grumble about, at least you have two things. The government, the garment, and the weather. It's been so hot this week. So which one you want? Hot or cold? Decide lah. Right? There will always be circumstances to fear. Have you ever woken up and said, there's nothing to fear in this world? There is. But there is faith in God to overcome fear. You can always use your human logic to lie, but your human logic shouldn't be a cover-up for your distrust of God. You think God cannot see beneath, beyond the veneer of distrust? You distrust God, that's why you embark on this. So how are you wriggling yourself out of obedience to God? So notice at the end of chapter 1, they repent, say, we will go. And God says, don't go. Because now they rebel, I'm not going to be with you. They went. They were totally routed. And beware fake repentance when we don't see the seriousness of sinning against God and others. Unless you see the seriousness of your distrust of God, you will never learn to trust Him as Saviour, Deliverer, Provider, Protector. You will never learn to trust Him. You've got to learn that your heart is prone to distrust of God. Is that true? It's absolutely true. And so the story is told of Polycarp. He's not a fisher. He's a bishop in the early church, most likely a disciple of John the Apostle. As Bishop of Smyrna in Asia Minor, Smyrna, one of the seven cities, right? Seven churches that Jesus spoke to, Smyrna. And so Polycarp, the persecution was beginning, false accusations against them was beginning. And what was the false accusations against Christians and against him as pastor of the Christians? They said, as they arrested him to be burned at the stakes, they were shouting for Polycarp to be burned. 
This is the teacher of Asia, the father of Christians, the destroyer of our gods, the one who teaches not many not to sacrifice, not to worship. Soon they were shouting for Polycarp to be burned. And so Polycarp was arrested and then they brought him up to where they laid the wood for him to be burned, the pyre. They usually nail the person to that wood and then all the wood underneath so that they won't run. And Polycarp said to those who were guarding him, don't need to nail me to the pyre. I will stand here by my own will. I will not run. In direct quotations, for he who makes it possible for me to endure the fire will make it possible for me to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security of nails. And so they lit the fire, and so he stood. He was betrayed by one of his own slaves, and so he stood. And for those who came to arrest him, he gave them a meal. And as he died, he pronounced forgiveness for those who were burning him. And so what do you see in Polycarp? Sounds so much like Sounds so much like Stephen. Sounds so much like Jesus. You must never say the giants are too big. You must never give yourself a reason for distrust. He just said this. How can I betray? I have served him for 86 years and in no way has he dealt unjustly with me. So how can I blaspheme Jesus, my King, who saved me? He has never betrayed me. So the lesson to them, for us, remember the past for present obedience and the enduring lessons of vision. Israel and we have to decide what we do with our eyes. We usually decide life by what we see. Thus says our circumstances. But as God's people, we are to decide by what? God calls us to decide by our ears and our hearing. Thus says the Lord. Faith comes from hearing God. Remember how the book begins? The Lord said to me, the Lord said to me, the Lord said to me to say to you, the moment you do not hear God's voice above the many competing voices of this world, distrust will slowly seep into your heart and my heart. So are we wondering about the land? No, God wants to give us not just a right vision of the land. He wants to give us a right vision of Him, His love, His promise to bless us. And finally, He wants us to give us a vision of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what did we do over Hari Raya yesterday? It's a whole week of holidays in Malaysia, understandably so, maybe in Indonesia. And what can we do? We got a call by the authorities can you help us deliver some food to the workers in the dorms? This is not your adopted dorm. 61 Gold Drive in Tuas, which is our adopted dorm through the COVID crisis. And Pastor Laknong texts me, can we do this or not? What do you think I said? Please do not. Please go. He sent me a photo of him, of Bill Ho, driving him and them delivering the food. All smiles. We are not called to go on holy war. We are now called to go and win people for Christ. With small acts of love, and the small acts of love, 
are used by God to slowly bring people into the kingdom. That's the right vision of God, a right vision of Jesus, a right vision of why God has blessed us. So God has blessed us tremendously in Singapore. God has blessed us so abundantly in ERPC. Amen? Come to the ACM and listen to what God has done for us and through us. And may I encourage you to keep listening to this God and not give Him excuses for our distrust of Him. We close our time in prayer before we have the Holy Communion. Ask the musicians to come forward. We're going to sing a song in preparation. All that you say to us in your word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. All that you say to us in your word is to lead us to be saved by you, that you would be our God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we would be your people. We thank you for the many poignant and painful lessons that Israel had to learn under you. And we pray that we do not just think that it is Israel who would fail and did fail. We are all a small, living, breathing example of distrust, of rebellion, of grumbling, of fears, of blaming others. And there will be no ending of this circle of rebelling against you, apart from your faithfulness, fulfill your promise to break this cycle of sin by the giving of Jesus. We pray that by your Spirit, we would believe Jesus more and more, the beauty of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and be willing to take part in the great mission to bring the glorious gospel to family and friends, as we ourselves live no longer by what we see. Thus says our circumstances. The enemies are huge, the fortresses are great, and life is full of fears. But thus says our Lord that we can go forth and make disciples of all nations. Hear our prayers that we might live this one life in glory of you. Amen. <laughs>